Welcome to The Ramp Up, the podcast that tells the inspiring stories of the thought leaders, founders, and experts behind the leveraged loan and structured credit markets. I'm your host and CEO of Octora, Brian Vigile. Together, we'll uncover what it takes to ramp up a market, turn the tide, and really shake things up. How do you migrate an idea into a thriving business? Let's find out. Today's guest is Scott McKay, head of Blue Owl Liquid Credit. We're going to talk about how you went from managing acquisitions for the Air Force's space program to founding one of the most successful CLO franchises to launch after the great financial crisis. I hope you enjoy the conversation. First of all, Scott, thank you for coming to have this conversation with me. My pleasure, Brian. You know, you've been a good friend for a long time. We've known each other for for years, and I'm honored, actually, that you would think of me to to be a part of of this series that you're doing. And thank you for for considering me and, and having me here this afternoon. Uh, and you're right. You and I have known each other for uh, uh, over ten years now, and I remember fondly when we first met, which was at the time that you were at Doral Bank. That's right. And we're going to come back to that. And at the time, you were managing the bank loan program, the CLOs, which was uh, an incredible time in terms of uh, the loan market. But I think a good place for us to start is to go back even further. So uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about your family, sure. where you're from and where you grew up. Yeah. So I was born in Michigan. My folks were uh, graduates of Michigan State. Uh, I was born there in East Lansing, and we lived there till I was about five or six years old. At that time, my father took a job opportunity in uh, the Bay Area in, in Santa Clara, and my mom and dad and my brother and I, we drove cross-country and, and moved to California. From there, I, I grew up in, in, in Santa Clara, uh, went to an all-boys Jesuit high school, and ultimately uh, went to the Air Force Academy. I was recruited to play football there. You know, Football was a big part of my life. And a lot of the lessons that I learned playing football, and particularly at a very high level at the Air Force Academy, and the importance of team and, and, and sacrifice and, you know, putting yourself not above, you know, the goals of, of the team, being part of something much bigger than yourself are characteristics that, you know, I try to bring forward in, in, my, in my professional life. Um, and, uh, you know, from there, um, you know, I was blessed um, to, to have a very successful, you know, career and, and uh, went on to, to serve for five years in the Air Force and uh, ultimately, you know, made my way to Wall Street. And let's go back on football. Sure. I know, as you said, football has been a big part of your life. Was that one of the reasons for joining the academy? Yeah, so I had some, you know, smaller Division II opportunities to play football. A couple schools wanted me to play both football and baseball. You know, I certainly had a passion for football and wanted to challenge myself at the highest level. And the Air Force Academy provided that Mm -hmm. um, opportunity for me. I didn't know if, you know, I was going to be big enough, fast enough, was going to be able to stay healthy through, you know, my college football career in order to, you know, maximize the opportunity. Mm -hmm. And so the ultimate decision came down to, well, you know, if the football opportunity doesn't work itself out, I'll be able to graduate with a, with a very good education. And 
a, a guaranteed job after after college. And so I felt like the academy provided me with kind of the both, best of both worlds at the time and and gave me the option of, you know, whether, you know, football didn't work out, that I would have a soft landing with being able to serve and, and graduate. That's incredible foresight you know, to already anticipate that, like, you know, I should give myself options in case, you know, one doesn't play out, there's always something else that you can do after that. Yeah. And I think as we talk about how my career has kind of played out, you know, leveraging the options and giving yourself as many options as possible. I was talking to my, my father this weekend about folks, I believe, in life get at least one critical opportunity at the plate that can really change the direction of their life. You know, I think I've been very fortunate to have, you know, multiple ones, but when you take that shot, you know, how do you maximize it when you get that opportunity? And I think to your point, you know, having options, creating options for yourself through hard work and relationships and, and making good decisions, I think is something in life that can, you know, really accelerate one's, one's path. You're in the Air Force for five years, you know, for service. Can you tell us a little bit more about what it is you're working on while you're serving? Yeah, sure. So the first year I was actually a football coach for the football team at the academy, coaching the JV and helping mm -hmm. with recruiting. And then from there, I served four years at Los Angeles Air Force Base, mm -hmm. which many people probably don't even know exists, but it's it's a small base in El Segundo right near LAX. Mm -hmm. And it's it's now part of Space Command, part of the Space Force. And there we were working on the program office that I was working in was the new launch vehicle program that would launch our communication, GPS, weather, and reconnaissance satellites into orbit. And I did that in that program office for two years. And then the last two years I was there, I ran the finances for one of our, our Delta II rocket programs that Boeing sourced for us and, and ran that program office there. Does everybody have to fly when you uh, join the Air Force? <laughs> no. In fact, you know, at the Air Force Academy, about 50% of the class goes on to fly. I learned very early in my time at the Air Force Academy that flying was not going to be a viable option for me, <laughs> given uh, my propensity to want to get uh, oh. airsick in the back of planes. And there's actually a funny story that goes along with that around my time when I was stationed at Moody's Air Force Base for a summer program where I went up in the back of an F-16 and proceeded to be sick for about two and a half hours <laughs> on, a, on a flight where oh boy. Uh, I passed out. But uh, <laughs> needless to say, that was the precursor to me choosing not to fly and you know, going down a, a different path, obviously, which was, you know, the acquisition career field, which focused more on finance and, and acquisition and, and program management within within the Air Force. I'm guessing that's the point where you decided to go get an MBA. That's right. So, <laughs> you know, I, I never knew whether or not becoming a career officer was something that that I wanted to do. And again, getting back to this concept of having options at, at forks in the road in your life and in your career, I knew that if I wasn't going to become a career officer, that getting a master's degree from a reputable university was something that would put me in a, in a good position to have maximize the options when my service commitment time was up. 
And so I went to USC and got an MBA. I did it while working still in the Air Force. And so my day would consist of a 6.30, 7 a.m. start in the office and then, you know, head up to USC around 5, 5.30 and did the classes at night, which was a great experience. And I was very fortunate to be able to, to have that opportunity and, and go to school there. And from there, I didn't really have a, a goal in mind of where my career was going to go, but I leveraged a lot of former academy graduates who had, you know, paid the path as far as going and transitioning from the Air Force to Wall Street, both Air Force Academy, Naval Academy, and West Point graduates that kind of I was able to network with um, and learn more about this world of investment banking. And, and it was something that I became very drawn to and attracted to and, you know, had to work really hard to get the opportunity to start my Wall Street career. But, you know, I was very, very fortunate of a lot of people along the way that, that helped me create that opportunity. When I picture people at the academy, I have this image of Top Gun, people in the bar, you know, <laughs> hanging out and throwing back shorts. But you were taking classes at night. So did you have time to at least, you know, go out, socialize, party a little bit? I mean, the South Bay in Southern California is a pretty lively time. And, you know, I had a lot of former teammates of mine from the academy that that were out there as well. Mm. And so by no means, don't feel sorry about uh, <laughs> about my uh, my uh, my work in, in school uh, balance. We were there was still time to enjoy ourselves. And 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 when I was at USC, that was the that was the great run of the Pete Carroll mm. national championship seasons and in undefeated seasons. And so it was a really exciting time to be on campus there at USC when that football team was was enjoying a lot of the successes that they had. So you've spent a good chunk of your life at this point on the West Coast. And this is the point that you make your track east to come to Wall Street. And you know when I think about that, right, and looking at your background, coming from the military, this is before, uh, I think, a more recent wave to support veterans coming to uh, to the street. So I imagine you were the quintessential outsider at the time coming onto the street. Yeah, it, it certainly wasn't the core path that banks usually use to to recruit their talent. You know, I was very fortunate though that at Bear Stearns there were a lot of former academy grads who had done very well at Bear and had pretty important roles there. And, you know, when I think about, you know, Brom Smith, for example, you know, 70 graduate of the Air Force Academy, you know, was quintessential in in helping me get to Bear Stearns. And, you know, I remember meeting him after my first round of interviews. And there was always this talk of this mythical 70 graduate from the Air Force Academy that was at Bear Stearns that nobody had really met. And at the time, you know, I was very fortunate to, to have met Brom and you know, when you think about a guy like Brom Smith, who, you know, is really considered one of the godfathers of the leveraged loan market, to have somebody like him as a personal board member of mine to to guide me and, and be a, a resource and, and a sounding board for my career and being responsible for, for helping start my career and ultimately my family, because he was responsible for mm. making the introduction to, to Susie, my wife. It just goes to show you how how small 
and tighten it, the academy graduate, you know, network is. And, you know, I was very, very fortunate that I was able to start my career there, work in a group in leverage finance with Brahm and other very talented folks at the time to start my career. That's incredible. And Brahm also has had a huge impact, not just at Bestens. He goes on to run the LSTA, which is right. the Loan Market Association. And it had a huge growth uh, during his tenure. So he has had a significant impact on the market. Yeah, even before he got to Bear Stearns, you know, he was at Morgan Stanley and, mm -hmm. and, and bankers before that. And he, it's funny, he, he has a, a real passion for this asset class. You know, we still see each other very frequently around the holidays or at, at my son's football games mm. because he's very much part of our family. And we we find ourselves talking about the loan market uh, mm. and what's going on with comings and goings of people in the loan market and, and, and whatnot. So, you know, he's just been a great mentor to me and somebody that when you think about folks that have had a, a, a very impactful presence on one's career, you know, obviously for a lot of reasons. And Brahms, Brahms been that for me. And I believe he's done a little bit more than that for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's responsible for, uh, for, for Susie and I. And, you know, Susie was fortunate, I guess, and probably, and I was obviously more fortunate to be out that afternoon with, with Brahm having a soda pop mm. after a long day of work. And Susie saw Brahm probably thought he was buying drinks, which, you know, Brom very rarely does, but um, <laughs> it was great for Brom to make that introduction to Susie and I kind of on a whim and coincidence has it and the rest is history. Did you pick up the tab? I think Brom actually picked up the tab that night. I picked up the dinner tab later that night, but Brom picked up the beers. So at some point, we're now getting into the financial crisis, it's 07, 08, Bear Stands goes under. You leave Bear, you go to Rothschild, right? Yeah, that was um, that was a very difficult time. Um, certainly, there were, you know, I'd only been there almost three years at the time, and there were a lot of people there at Bear that had been there their entire careers and had obviously a lot more invested in the success of the firm. But I would say though that you know during my time there, it felt like a career, right? It, mm. There were great people there. There were, you know, great relationships made. And, you know, the bear culture really looked after each other mm -hmm. and took care of each other. You know, in some ways, I think Bear was fortunate that that we went earlier on in the process than the rest of some of the financial institutions that that came after, which allowed those folks to to land more softly than maybe others. And I thought that, you know, I'd come to Bear and I have a very long career there mm -hmm. and, and maybe make my way back to the West Coast like I promised my mom when I left. But obviously, you know, circumstances can change things very, very quickly. And so, you know, I, I went to Rothschild, did restructuring for for a year, quickly realized that I wasn't very good at restructuring banking and got a phone call from the co-head of Leverage Finance at Bear Stearns, Keith Barnish said, look at, we've, you know, I think it's a great opportunity to buy leveraged loans. This is, you know, early 2009 now, and, you know, I'd like you to come over and be a part of it. So he had raised about $500 million from 
Doral Bank, which was a, a portfolio company asset of Bear Stearns Merchant Banking that was a Puerto Rican thrift bank with a lot of non-performing assets that they had on their balance sheet from residential market uh -huh. in, in Puerto Rico. And we're looking to diversify into U.S. assets. And so in basically the spring of 2009, we started buying bank debt. No idea if we were going to be able to finance that in CLOs at some point or, or how it was going to play out. But, you know, we knew that buying bank debt in, in the 70s and 80s at that time was a, was a probably a good investment. And then, you know, as the market slowly came back, you know, you were able to buy 4B credits at LIBOR plus, you know, 600, LIBOR plus 700. Like, you know, it's unheard of now in, you know, in this this market environment, even even with the volatility and, and some of the challenges that we have in the asset class today. But I look back on that moment again, where again, options and relationships created another opportunity. And being able to work with Keith and, you know, my partner today, Dennis Talley, that time in our careers was was a was a great great opportunity. That's one heck of a lot of change coming very quickly. You migrate east, you get to bear, you lose an employer, you change career, realize probably time for a pivot. You go to Doral Bank, it's a great opportunity. And then what was next for you guys? Well, Susie and I got married and had our first child. So <laughs> so you can add all of that into it. It was a lot. It mm. was a lot. And so, you know, when I think about, you know, some of the lessons I learned as a child and, and, and things that my my parents bestowed upon me through my upbringing was perseverance. Mm -hmm. And as as you know, in, in business and, and entrepreneurship and, and starting a business, that perseverance is critical in, in, the, in the ultimate success of that business. And, you know, there were times when I was at the Air Force Academy that I had second thoughts on whether or not this was the right place for me. And being away from home for the first time and going through basic training and all the things that come with being a freshman at the Air Force Academy are challenging. But my parents, bless their hearts, were basically, you're not coming home. <laughs> um, and so that taught me that I needed to grit it out, work hard, and and stay the path. And so I think as all that change was going on around me, to your point, I think having a good compass and, and staying true to yourself, having a lot of the people supporting, you know, good support system around you was really what got me through those challenging years. And this is the Doral Bank period. This is the time that you and I met. Right. You know, at some point after Doral, that's when we get to Wellfleet. Right. But I know it wasn't a straight line there. Right. How did you get to Little John and to establish Wellfleet? Sure. So in 2010, you know, the CLO market started coming back and we were one of the first managers at the time to, to issue a CLO. It was actually a, a it was a two tranche deal. It was triple mm. A's in equity. Yep. And we basically financed the assets that we had on the balance sheet at, at Doral. And then we came to market again in 2012 with two deals. And then around that time was all the discussions around risk retention and and rules that were going to require us to to have more skin in the game and have to raise capital. 
certainly the the situation uh, in Puerto Rico was not improving and and there were challenges related to our ability to kind of raise outside money with the shingle at at, at Doral. Mm. And so in April of 2014, Keith Barnish unexpectedly passes away. And, you know, that was obviously a another big, you know, moment in my career. And, you know, when you lose a guy that you'd worked for basically your entire career up to that point, I mean, somebody who had been very uh, supportive and gave me, you know, as much rope as I could run with, that was, that was tough losing somebody like that unexpectedly and somebody who was very supportive of my career and, and, and helped me grow. And so I knew that things were going to transition at Doral. And, you know, I also knew that things were transitioning within the industry, right? And being part of an institution or a firm that had capital, that had a solution for risk retention was foremost in, in, in my mind as far as latching myself onto. And so I didn't know at the time, actually, you know, over the course of 2014, how things were going to work itself out. And I remember going to ABS East in the fall of, of 2014 and, you know, been interviewing um, with a variety of different firms at the time. And I took a meeting with uh, David Power, who was at Green's Ledge at the time. Mm. And I remember going up to this penthouse suite room he had at the Fountain Blue. And he we were sitting, he were sitting across from each other. And, you know, I was kind of walking him through kind of what what I had going on. And he was obviously very good friends with with Keith Barnish. And, you know, certainly I think had a an interest in in seeing me land softly. And he says to me, he goes, Well, do you want to go work at a firm or do you want to go be the guy? And I said, excuse me? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> he said, do you want to go be the guy? And I said, well, that's interesting. You know, do you think I'm ready to be the guy? And he said, I do. And they had been advising the partners at Little John on, you know, the asset class. And Little John wanted to get into uh, liquid credit and syndicated loans. Little John had been predominantly a middle market private equity firm with a special situation opportunistic sleeve that they had business that they that they had had for a while and had a, had a lot of success with. And so they were looking to expand the business. And so I went in and met with them in November of 2014, and we had a deal put together by. And I started February 1st, 2015. Wow. And I know that you were able to bring a good chunk of the team from Doral into the now Little John Warfleet uh, program. How did you manage to pull that off? Yeah, that was obviously very critical for a lot of reasons. And I, and I touched on them earlier around lessons that I learned on the football field and being in a locker room with 81 guys to go win a football game together. Mm. And I was blessed that I was getting this opportunity, right, to go start a business at Little John. But I always felt that it wouldn't be the same if I couldn't do it with the guys that 
you know, help get here. And so it was great to be able to bring, you know, obviously Dennis with me, Jeff Tynick, Shane Cantwell as the the four horsemen, I like to call us, <laughs> to start there at Little John. And loyalty and creating a good culture cannot ever be underestimated in this in this business. And I like to think that the business that we're in today is still very much a people business, right? The people that have had an influence on our careers, the people who have chosen to invest in our businesses, that is a very, very important part of, of this, of our asset class. And I think a very special and unique one. And, you know, I think the loan market has been blessed with a lot of great personalities. And I, I'd like to think that I'm a product of that. I couldn't agree more. And that's exactly why I actually had this idea of doing this podcast to be able to bring a lot of these incredible stories for the people who actually make our market what it is. Right. So we're at Warfleet now. In 2015, you guys get your first deal off, which is incredible yeah. after having made the transition uh, that quickly. When did you know that this thing was going to work? It's going to be a success. Yeah. So Little John basically you know, had enough capital to support kind of the first two deals. And beyond that, I knew we were going to have to raise equity capital. But I felt that having a risk retention solution at the time, there was plenty of investors out there that we would be able to attract. So we did our first deal in 2015, and we came back and did our second deal. We had hoped that we could place equity in our second deal, but you had a lot of volatility in the market at that time driven by challenges in the energy market. Yep. And so we ended up doing a smaller deal, and Little John took all the equity capital in that deal. And basically, we were we were done. Mm. Like that was it. That was all the capital. And so I remember an investor that that has been very important to to our our growth, a Latin American investor. I had actually uh, managed a portfolio on behalf of their bank through City, mm. and I was educating them on the CLO asset class. And you know, it was always. Not at this time. And I, and I think one thing that you learn in growing and building a business, you got to get used to hearing the word no a lot and, and keep persevering yeah. through that. And so I, I put together another deck. This was our third CLO. And the response came back, why don't you come down here and we'll talk about it. And I came back with an investment. And so that was our first CLO with true third-party equity in it. And then, you know, again, you start your next one with a complete whiteboard, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. where's the equity going to come from there? And we had always had a very, very good relationship with the folks at Mass Mutual in Barings. And I remember getting a phone call from Matt Nacharian. And he said, look, we've recently raised an equity fund. We're going to have three to five managers in that fund, and we'd like you to be one of them. And when that happened, I knew that we were going to have success. Having a, an investor like that validate you and take equity risk in your CLOs through a risk retention structure that wasn't straightforward was, I think, 
what was the catalyst to future growth. So that was our fourth CLO, the first one in 2017. So Matt Nichiren at the time was the head of structured credit at Barron's, which is one of the largest investors in this space. So that was incredible that you got on that platform. I also remember you, despite your plane sickness, jumping on a lot of planes going to Japan. And I know Tokyo <laughs> has been an important part of your franchise. Yeah, so I, I always felt that because our risk retention solution wasn't going to be European compliant, that in order to grow our business and improve on our liability pricing, that I was going to need to create the investor base in Asia. And so I remember, I think after our first CLO, Morgan Stanley, between Morgan Stanley doing our first and second deal, that we go to Tokyo. Um, and at that time, Tokyo was really a place for only the longstanding CLO 1.0 managers that had any sort of success. And so I believe on our fourth CLO with City, we attracted a majority AAA investor for that deal. And I think Jim Hughes to this day still thinks that's the <laughs> uh, setting is still the record for a de novo CLO platform to to attract a, a AAA investor from from Tokyo. I remember when uh, when you did that deal, and you there were definitely a lot of uh, eyebrows raised and admiration that you were able to pull that off. So that was uh, an incredible accomplishment. Thank you. Uh, to be able to get that done. In 2022, Wallfleet was acquired by uh, Blue Owl, mm -hmm. and you're now Blue Owl Credit, right? Can you tell us about the new uh, platform? Yeah, so I remember where I was when Doug Ostrover called me, and again, getting back to people. Andy Gordon and I were playing golf at a Credit Suisse golf outing. And he asked me, you know, how well do you know Doug Ostrover? I was like, well, I mean, I know, I know Doug is, you know, the O in GSO and has had a very successful career, but, you know, I don't have Doug on speed dial. And he said, well, I'm going to introduce the two of you because I think that you'll have some interesting things to talk about. Mm. So Andy sends the email that evening and Doug responds on the wire in, in the only way that Doug knows how. And we literally have a conversation the next day. And Doug obviously knows the asset class very, very well and was looking to add that capability to Blue Owl. Not just from a scaling a CLO platform, but bringing a liquid credit expertise to the firm. And so, you know, I, I felt, again, very, very fortunate to have a, such a great relationship with Andy where he felt confident and comfortable making that, making that introduction. And so we were acquired in April of last year, and we're now the liquid credit arm of, of Blue Owl on a, you know, 70 plus billion dollar credit business. We have roughly nine and a half billion now of CLOs across 25 CLOs. We're managing other pockets within the firm and helping them invest in the syndicated loan market. 
whereas today we have roughly 15 plus billion in uh, syndicated loans between CLOs and uh, um, other funds that we that we manage. That's incredible growth in a short period of time. And by the way, Andy is going to be on the podcast uh, in a couple of episodes. <laughs> he's, world. A, he's, a, he's a great one to have. And, uh, you know, like we talked about Brom and talked about John Galley as another very dear friend who, you know, you want to talk about a guy who was in my foxhole at a time when, you know, Keith had passed away and what was I going to do? And him stepping up to say, hey, we're going to support Scott's first two deals at Little John. John is uh, another one of those guys that just has been very helpful in my career at different different points in time. And and you'll have a great you'll have a great conversation with Andy. He's the best. Yeah, I can't wait for that as well. If you could go back to see Scott, you know, this recent associate at Burstens, what would you tell him today? I would tell him, look, your career is going to take a lot of twists and turns. Your life is going to have peaks and valleys. And persevere. Surround yourself with great people. And have great relationships. You know, form great relationships with people. Because you never know when that opportunity is going to present itself. Because I can tell you that every opportunity that I've had, and certainly hard work helped, but it was the relationships that I've built along the way where people were willing to either advocate on my behalf, help recruit me to a new situation, and provide that soft landing to what otherwise would be a, a very turbulent and, and challenging time. Get used to hearing the word no a lot, mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that's okay. Yep. And you know, don't be afraid to share with people, right? Don't be afraid to share what your goals are in life. Don't be afraid to share with your friends what's important to you. Right? What do you want to accomplish? Because you can't get there by yourself. And take care of the people around you. People will be gravitated to that. And one of the things that I'm very proud of, setting aside the growth and the success that we've had, is that we've had no turnover on our team. And, you know, I take a lot of pride in that and taking care of the team and, and, and creating a culture and environment that, that people enjoy, you know, working in. That's incredible. When you look back at the last decade and a half, what would you do differently? That's a hard one because I, I could have never have imagined when I got on that flight out of LA to, to come to, New York, that A, I would stay and, and B, that it would, it would work out as well as it has and that I would, you know, have this, you know, amazing family, amazing wife, such great friends, community, great 
great friendships within in a professional in this market that we get the opportunity to to function in every every day. So I don't know if I would have done it any differently, but I think continuing to have confidence in yourself mm. to know that you you've been in this turbulent environment before and that you're going to come out better for it. You know, sometimes you lose sight of that. And I think that that is probably one of the greater lessons that I've, that I've learned through all this is you got to have confidence in yourself or else nobody else is going to have confidence in you. Mm. And you're never going to always be right. You know, your decisions are always going to be second guessed. But if you can look yourself in the mirror every day and say you're doing the best you can for your team, for your investors, that good things will come out of it. That's incredible. The last one for you. Sure. So the thing about our industry is for people on the outside, it's not always clear what we're doing. We're not flying <laughs> planes. We're not performing heart surgery or any of that stuff. I know you just spent Thanksgiving with your with your dad. Mm -hmm. What does he think you do? <laughs> well, it's taken a while. You know, it's been 15 years. He now is certainly gotten to the point where he can ask me questions like, well, with interest rates so high, that means, you know, defaults are going to go up, which, what does that mean for your portfolio? <laughs> and I said, well, that is not great. <laughs> but, you know, my parents are obviously very proud. They're proud of my brother and I. My brother also followed me to the Air Force Academy and is an FBI agent in San Diego. And so they're the proud grandparents to, to nine beautiful children. And I think that this asset class is very unique, although I think over the last 15 years, we've seen a tremendous amount of growth. And certainly, I've been the beneficiary and in, in you know, the businesses that I've been fortunate enough to be associated with have been a beneficiary of that. As you know, we continue to grow and, and face new challenges, it, it will continue to mature. And we're seeing what I think is a, is a pretty meaningful maturation of our asset class over the last couple of years and becoming much more mainstream than it's probably ever been. And you know, there's a lot of people to thank for that that have helped educate you know, the alternative investment asset class. But it's interesting. There's a lot more material out there about leveraged loans than there ever was yeah. before. Yeah. So uh, I think in some ways, my parents are a beneficiary of the growth and the maturation of the asset class over the last 15 years, where they now you know, have a better sense of what I do for a day, on a daily basis. That's how we know we're making it. When <laughs> exactly. It, when it. Exactly. Scott, thank you for making time to come and talk to me today. Brian, it was an absolute pleasure. All the best and, and nothing but the success for you and Tora as, you, as we move forward. So thank you for what you're doing for the asset class. And thank you for having me today. Thanks for listening today. For more conversations like these, Subscribe to The Ramp Up wherever you listen to your podcast. See you next time. <laughs>